This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, space, time, brain, life, the universe. This week, the world's favourite addiction, caffeine. But is it bad for you? We're delving into the science to find out. Plus, the latest on Zika virus. Bedbugs get their genome sequenced. And will going out with wet hair give you pneumonia? I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Greer Jackson. And this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Earlier this week, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency around the outbreak of Zika virus in Brazil, where as many as a million people could have been infected with this agent since last year. The virus has been linked with a birth defect known as microcephaly, which means an undersized brain, in children born to women who pick up the infection when they're pregnant. Now, Zika virus was first described in the 1940s in one part of Africa, and it's transmitted by mosquitoes, But scientists don't know what's causing the sudden flurry of cases in Brazil or the true scale of the disease. Next week, the UK Science and Technology Committee have announced that they're convening a special hearing on Zika to examine the threat. Peter Horby specialises in emerging infectious diseases at Oxford University and he'll be giving evidence to that panel. The mosquitoes don't fly very far at all, probably only a a few hundred metres up to 500 metres maybe. So it's actually people that spread it. So someone will get infected and they will travel while they're still infectious and then they'll be bitten by a mosquito at the other end uh, and then they will then infect the mosquito populations and, and humans at the other end. So it's, it's people that are moving the virus around the world. And when a person succumbs to Zika virus, what happens to them? How does it make people ill? Well, this is generally a mild illness, actually. Probably... 60 to 80% of infections are actually asymptomatic, so people really don't get sick. And those that do get sick, they'll get fever, muscle aches, joint pains and a rash. It wouldn't have really been a concern if it hadn't been for the abnormalities seen in the babies born towards the end of this year. How long does a person incubate the infection before they become symptomatic? Not really known, but it's probably, you know, three days up to possibly two weeks. We need to really look into that. You say that this is a mosquito spread infection, therefore the infection's likely to go where the mosquitoes are. So where around the world are those mosquitoes? And in other words, which territories are most at risk of of ending up with this as an endemic infection? Unfortunately, the mosquitoes are all over the place. The Aedes mosquitoes really you know, live in the tropical band, but that tropical band is is all the way around the world. So it's across, you know, Central Africa, South America, most of Asia 
uh, so huge populations are at risk of being bitten by these mosquitoes. There are two types that are likely to be transmitting this virus. There's the Aedes aegypti, which is the principal vector of dengue. So we're likely to see Zika virus in the same distribution we see dengue virus. But there's another mosquito called Aedes albopictus, which is a bit more tolerant of cold. So we actually have that mosquito in parts of southern Europe, and it's also in reasonably large parts of the southern parts of the United States. One of the most concerning aspects of this outbreak has been that people have reported an increase in microcephaly. These are babies being born with brains that are undersize. What's the evidence that Zika virus is to blame for that? The reports of microcephaly, which many of us would have seen on the on the TV and are quite distressing, is the reason that the WHO have declared this a public health emergency. What we've seen is in Brazil, the virus really took off in February last year. And then almost exactly nine months later, there was an increase in the number of babies born with microcephaly. And then there was biological evidence as well. So in some women who had abnormalities on ultrasound, they took a sample of the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby in the womb and found the virus there. And then in a handful of babies that were born with microcephaly and then died very quickly, and in a couple of babies that there was spontaneous abortion, they also identified the virus in those children. Do we know how it damages the developing brain? No, we don't. We know that babies can be infected in the womb by several different organisms, and traditionally that does interfere with the development of the child. One of the worries is that the microcephaly we're seeing is just one presentation of the problem, and there may be more subtle changes in developmental or neurological development of children that are harder to detect that might be due to Zika virus. Peter Horby from the University of Oxford. Now, Greer, you've left me all on my own in the studio. You have disappeared. Where have you gone and what are you up to? Well, Peter Cowley, our tech investor, has dragged me into the kitchen to show me a home roasting kit. I'm just going to switch it on to preheat now. But tell me a bit about this roaster. Yeah, this is quite an amazing device, which will allow one to roast beans with a set temperature profile and a uh, cyclone speed, which allows cooling. And the idea behind it is that you can set it exactly right for a particular recipe of roasting and share that so you can actually share around amongst uh, you know other users of the machine the best way of doing this and getting the best coffee so i have an app downloaded on my phone and that pairs with this device with bluetooth and that means i can control the temperature how hot it gets and how quickly it gets to that temperature does temperature have a big role to play in this Apparently it's very important. and I take my coffee out of a jar that comes off out of the kitchen cupboard, so not to me. But there are points in the temperature curve between 205 degrees centigrade and 250 where certain things happen. The way it breaks down, where the chemistry of the beans actually happens and separates out, which then gives you the difference between a lightly roasted coffee and a very dark roasted. So this coffee roaster, it's about 30 centimetres in height. It's white and there's a glass jar at the bottom. And at the top, if you look in, you can see a fan in there. I presume that's where the coffee beans are going to go. And it's pretty heavy, actually. It's pretty hefty, although it is quite slender and narrow, maybe only 10 centimetres at its widest at the top. So it wouldn't have too much trouble fitting on your, on your kitchen work surface. It certainly looks appropriate for the sort of price you're paying for it. And in fact, it's only doing 50 to 60 grams of coffee anyway. So if you look at it that way around, it's actually quite large. But it'll look great in a, in a high-end kitchen. It's now saying ready to roast on the machine. So why don't we pour those lime green beans in? Okay. 
And now if we twist this nozzle, the fan will turn off as the beans drop in, Whitney. So let's do that. The fan goes off, in go the beans, and I'm going to twist it back round and shut it. And now on my app, it's saying roasting. And we can follow it in real time as well. So I can see currently it's only 120 degrees, but it's rising 126, 130. Whilst that's roasting away, tell me about this bag you've brought along with you. Yes, this is a sous vide bag, in fact. It's used in high-end kitchens, so Blumenthal and other and Ramsey have used them for many years. But it's coming down market now, down market in terms of price and, and increasing number of volume. So talk me through what I'd do with it. What sort of things would I cook in this bag? It's designed to cook all kinds of things, so meat and fish are the obvious ones, but one can even cook egg. This is rather a big bag. This would be probably for a, a roast for two or three people. Put it in here, seal all the air out of it, and then drop it in a bag of water. Good old boil-in-the-bag things from the 70s, which I sort of grew up with. No, I didn't. That would be a very unfair of my mother. And so that cooks then. Now, the difference about the cooking is that it's very low temperature. It's 55 or 60 degrees centigrade, but for much longer. And what it does is, because it's a constant temperature, it cooks through gradually so that it's not overcooking anything. It's effectively making sure it's, the fabric of the food remains perfect. And I suppose that's why it's been more beneficial than cooking in an oven. I can already see the benefits of less washing up because it's in a bag. But actually, does it taste better? Because I have to admit, the idea of boiling my roast dinner in a bag is not very appealing. I'm absolutely confident that it will taste better. What it won't do, look better, unless you brown it. <laughs> it's just, I think it's the boiling the bag concept that I'm not on board with. So the coffee roaster, as we return back to it, because I'm looking at the temperature gauge now and it's 196, and if I peer over the top and look at the beans, they've gone from that lime green colour to a sort of a caramel sort of colour. And I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to boil the kettle in anticipation. So I will hand back to you, Chris, in the studio, and I will speak to you when the beans are roasted. I can't wait. I can smell that coffee already. Thank you, Greer. Thank you, Peter. Bed bugs now. Bed bugs lurk in the nooks and crannies around your bed. And when night falls, they creep out and they use smell and temperature to track you down and to drink your blood. And the bites they leave behind are large, they're red and they are intensely itchy. Nearly eradicated half a century ago, these pests are making a comeback, though, and a very serious nuisance of themselves. So much so that more than 100 researchers across the globe have now collaborated to sequence the genetic code of the bedbug in the hopes of finding a way to control them. Felicity Bedford spoke with the lead author, Joshua Benoit. Here in the US, we have a comment saying, don't let the bedbugs bite. So we'll say that. And most people didn't even know what bedbugs were. But here, I mean, the number of bedbugs that are found is increasing pretty much every year since 2000. So people would use a lot of pyrethroids and other pesticides, but now these bedbug populations are showing um, thousands to tens of thousands fold resistance to these chemicals. So they're becoming more prevalent. And for a long time, say in large cities like London, New York, they weren't really endemic. So people would travel away and then bring them back. But now there's almost endemic populations of bedbugs present within all these cities. Is this just a case of changing the type of pesticide that we use? Why are you investigating the genetics exactly? We've almost run the course of every single pesticide that is actually available to use. And what our goal with the um, genome is to actually begin to start seeing if we can maybe find some sort of novel target, either some sort of gene or some sort of interference that can be new. And hopefully bedbugs won't have resistance to this, at least for a few years, so you can begin to control this exploding population of bedbugs. 
Was this project solely about finding out how they've evolved to resist these pesticides, or is there more to it than that? No, there's actually more to it. That um, bedbugs are actually interesting biologically a little bit too. The first thing is uh, they feed solely on blood. Um, they have all these novel adaptations, and we want to look at those. Um, they're sensing, like their odorant receptors are adapted to finding vertebrate hosts. Um, the second one is their mating style is very unique. So they mate by a process called traumatic insemination. The mating process involves a lot of conflict between male and the female. And for this, the male actually end up piercing the underside of the female through a special organ and then depositing the sperm into her abdomen rather than through the reproductive tract like a lot of other insects. And so we looked at some of the genes potentially involved in this topic. So at this stage, what you've got is you've got a genome and you've decided these are the interesting bits. These are the genes that we need to be looking at because we know that they're involved in the really interesting biology. And moving forward from here, there's a lot more research to do. What is the next step? So the idea is is to potentially look at them and how uh, populations populations of bed bugs move um, throughout areas and using the genome as a resource to analyze that. But then also what they want to do as well is they want to begin to see if we can take the genome and look for potentially novel bedbug specific genes that are critical to their survival and then hopefully find chemical targets that we can actually then use to control the bedbugs. And sincere apologies to anyone who's now feeling the intense urge to scratch like we are. That was Joshua Benoit from the University of Cincinnati. He was speaking with Felicity Bedford and his bedbug genome study was published this week in the journal Nature. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Greer Jackson. Uh, Still to come later on the programme, is coffee good for you? And speaking of which, I can almost smell the fumes, I think. How are you getting on, Greer and Peter, in the kitchen? We're getting on pretty well, actually. The roaster is now finished. What we've got to do is we've got to get them from where the fan is, and we've got to get them into a little jar. So if we just hit this switch here, let's have a look. fan is on, and it... And it's blowing the beans into a little glass jar at the bottom. So now what we'll do is we will grind them up. And the kettle is boiled. Are you excited, Peter? I'm really looking forward to this. Um, So, Peter, given that lots of high street chains do this... Is there really a market for this sort of thing? Why would we want something like this? Well, I think that's probably been proven by the fact that this is a company that was called Ikawa, and they've had a high-end version of this for some years, and they've probably sold many hundreds of those. So that's sort of proved that people do like it. This is a lower-cost version for the domestic market. And how much is it? I believe this one's about £500. So for a roasting device, that does sound quite expensive, I agree. But if you're really into your coffee and you want to do it correctly and you want to be able to share the results and get some really great coffee, that must be worth it. I've brewed up some coffee and I will be back in the studio with you very shortly, Chris. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. I have my caffeine cravings kicking in already. Now, what was it your mother told you about wet hair and not going out? Is it true? Or is it a myth? Kat Arnie has this week's myth conception. Dry your hair before you go out or you'll catch your death of cold. How many of us, particularly those blessed with luxuriant flowing locks, have heard this at some point in our lives? 
With high winds and rainstorms lashing many parts of the UK over the past month or so, long-haired lovelies with busy lives or a low boredom threshold might be wondering if it's really worth drying off our locks before tackling the outside world. But is there any scientific truth to the idea that going outside in the winter chill with wet hair will literally give you a chill? It's not entirely clear where this myth has come from, but in a snub to concerned parents everywhere, it's not true. The suspected link between cold temperature and catching a cold goes back a long way, from German scientists studying unfortunate soldiers stuck in cold, wet trenches in the First World War to sturdy Canadian Mounties stuck up in the Arctic, who were apparently more likely to get colds if they overexerted themselves in the nippy conditions. And in 2005, researchers at the Common Cold Centre in Cardiff yes, there really is a common cold research centre, published the results of a fairly small study showing that a small proportion of volunteers who had their feet dunked in cold water were more likely to develop cold-type symptoms a few days later. But that was 13 out of 90 people who got the cold foot bath, compared with 5 out of 90 who managed to avoid that unpleasant experience. But while going out in the cold with wet hair will probably make you feel more chilly, and there's some evidence that it can lower your body temperature, that's not what gives you a cold. That task comes down to microscopic viruses such as rhinovirus, adenovirus, and the granddaddy of them all, influenza. And you still need to be infected with cold viruses to catch a cold. And these are spread by horrible, germy people coughing and sneezing and snuffling all over the place, rather than by the dampness of your hairdo. Although if you go out with wet hair in sub-zero temperatures, there's a good chance that the water in it will freeze, which could make your hair more brittle and susceptible to breaking. So I guess it depends whether you think scruffy hair is worse than a horrible cold. That's not to say that temperature is completely irrelevant. After all, it's well documented that colds and flu are more prevalent in the miserable winter months. By way of explanation, a paper published in 2015 showed that cold viruses do thrive in cold weather because sensors in the immune system are a bit more sluggish when the temperature drops. But having wet hair and feeling cold won't make you catch them. Getting the little beggars inside your body will. So, at this time of year when snuffles and sneezes are generally more prevalent, it's much more important to wash your hands regularly and avoid touching your face than worry about whether you've washed and dried your hair. Sound advice from Kat Arney. She'll be back with another myth conception for you next time, and if you have something you'd like her to suss out, then why not email your questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Now, the whole place smells absolutely gorgeous. Grey has come in, not her perfume. It's that lovely cafetiere in your hand. It does. It smells It does beautiful. smell good, doesn't it? Mm. Really great. I'm going to pour some out, yeah, and pass it round to the team. Now, Chris... Do you ever read and listen to music at the same time? Yes, all the time. All the time. Well, you might be interested to know that new research published in the Royal Society of Open Science suggests that we hear music differently, especially when sentences are grammatically knotty or difficult. I met with Cambridge University's Ian Cross to pluck away at the findings. This study looks at whether or not language and music have the same relationship to our experience. That is, do we use the same brain systems in experiencing language and in experiencing music? Specifically, what this study does is looks at the ways in which we experience one thing following another. Now, in language, we can see this very clearly. It's called syntax. It's a set of rules 
that are implicit. We're not aware of using them, but we're aware when they're breached. Music seems to have something similar going on. I can imagine how in sentences there's a rule, there's a structure, there's a grammar. But in music, how does that play out? Well, here's a simple example. It's possible, but you probably wouldn't go there. And you certainly wouldn't go... Yeah, I can see what you mean. It just sounds wrong. Yeah. So we have intuitive expectations of what should follow what in music, just as we do in language. So it's theorised that these pattern rule-breaking things are in a process in the same part of the brain. And the idea of this study was to work out what happens. Yeah, the idea is to present people with sentences which have knotty bits, where you, they suddenly veer off in a weird direction. Like, the horse raced past the barn, fell. Yeah, I, I can. I was sort of looking up, thinking, yes, yes, okay, I'm with you. But it's not. I mean, there's easier ways of saying of saying that. There are easier ways of saying that, but we can see it that way. And they did this and played music at the same time to see what participants' response was, whether they understood or misunderstood the sentence. Yeah, they found that naughty bits in the music affected perception of naughty bits in the um, speech, and vice versa. What that suggests is that. A prior hypothesis, the shared syntactic resource integration hypothesis, snappy title, um, was in fact correct. And this hypothesis suggests that in, in language you, you have representations of words, word meanings if you like, stored in particular locations in the brain. You've got, in, in music, you've got representations of pattern stored in other locations in the brain. The bit that's shared is the, the bit where legitimate order is sorted out. They suggest that there are common um, cognitive and neural resources implicated in integrating the temporal structure in both language and in music. So there's almost this overlap, and the brain is trying to process two bits of information in the same place, and that's why you hear the music slightly differently or misunderstand this knotty sentence. That is precisely the case, that the same resources are being used to um, work out whether or not a particular sequence is legitimate or not. Cambridge's head of music and science there, Professor Ian Cross. A century or so ago, Einstein suggested that the fabric of space should be periodically punctuated by gravitational ripples produced by massive objects like black holes. And although all of his other theories have so far stood up to scientific scrutiny, no one has yet managed to find these gravitational waves. But recently, there's been growing excitement across the scientific community and on social media suggesting that someone has found something. But what are these waves? How are we hunting for them? And if we find them, what can they tell us about the universe? Georgia Mills took a trip to the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. Chris? Yes. Hi. Hi nice to meet you. Nice Hi. to meet you too. I thought the microphone might be a giveaway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name is Christopher Moore, uh, and I'm a student uh, at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, uh, and I'm studying for my PhD, and I work on gravitational waves. So gravitational waves are typically very, very small ripples in the gravitational field or space-time, uh, and they travel through the universe at the speed of light. So the gravitational field is something like the sun. You can imagine the sun as being a very heavy object sitting on a rubber sheet, 
and the sheet bends in towards the sun. And that curvature, that bending of the sheet, is what the gravitational field really is. Rather than thinking of gravity as a pulling force, you can think of it as a curvature of the fabric of the universe, what we call space-time. To help me out, Chris had an idea for a demo we could do to visualise this. Right, so let's give this a go. I've brought along some props. I've brought, I couldn't find a rubber sheet. I found my housemate's bed sheet. I'm sure she won't mind my borrowing it. I've got a grapefruit to uh, represent the sun. And I've got some planets here as well, some, <laughs> some chocolates. So here we go. So we've pulled out the sheet as tight as possible. And it's formed a straight, a, a straight surface. It should be infinite, really, but we haven't got an infinite bed sheet. So uh, a large, flat sheet. Right, so this represents space-time. Yes. I'm going to dump a sun in it. Glunk. Right, the grapefruit, or sun, has pulled down the rubber sheet, or space-time, and now it's formed this sort of dip in the middle. Yeah, so the sun, uh, the grapefruit, is in the middle of our sheet, uh, and the sheet is bending in towards the middle of the sun, and this represents the gravitational field of the sun. So let's test out this gravitational field with planets. I'm going to roll all these planets along the sheet and see what happens. That's better. We've got nearly two orbits there. (laughs) So some of our planets shot off into the abyss, but um, some of them did some quite nice orbital shapes around our sun and eventually went into the middle. So the idea is if you were to roll the marble fast enough across the sheet, but not, not directed towards the sun, it should roll round and round, the centre uh, center being the grapefruit, round and round, and this is called an orbit. This curvature of space-time means that planets are caught in the gravity of larger objects, and they form orbits. Our demo isn't perfect. The friction of the sheet means that our planets actually slow down and fall into the centre. Luckily for us, space is free of this friction, so our planet isn't spiralling towards a fiery inferno. So can we use this demo to visualise gravitational waves? So in our demo, we had uh, a large grapefruit as the sun and a very small round chocolate sweet as our planet. If instead we had two grapefruits, so two large objects uh, going round each other, as they moved, they'd constantly change the shape of the rubber sheet. And if you looked at this from a long, long way away, you'd see small changes in the fabric of the sheet, small changes in the space-time, rippling out from the centre of this system. And these ripples would be the gravitational waves. When massive objects interact, they cause ripples along the space-time, which in theory could be detected by us. Gravitational waves were predicted by Einstein almost a 100 years ago. So have we managed to find them yet? No, we haven't. Well, how are we going about trying to find them? I'm assuming scientists are trying their hardest. There's a a number of ways you can do it. The most popular approach is to hang a couple of mirrors a few kilometres apart and to try and measure the distance between these mirrors using lasers. Uh, If a gravitational wave were to go through in between your mirrors, it would stretch and compress the space in between your mirrors and your mirrors would move. And you'd be able to measure this as a change in the length of the distance in between your two mirrors. Isn't there a risk that all this other kind of stuff can get in the way? That's what makes it so difficult. So um, the gravitational waves are extremely weak, and if you build this, uh, if you build these two mirrors on the Earth, the signal is likely to be swamped by all sorts of other noise, wind, weather, seismic waves, earthquakes, all that sort of thing. So that's what makes it hard to do. This challenge has been met head-on by the scientific community. There are several detectors up and running, including LIGO in America. 
To avoid all of this chaos on Earth's surface, a giant L-shape with vacuum chambers four kilometres across has been built, while the ELISA project aims to solve this problem by heading into space. But there's one big question we haven't answered yet. Why do we actually want to find them? Uh, up until now, all the astronomy that we've been able to do has been using uh, light or electromagnetic waves. The systems that uh, give off gravitational waves in large amplitude, the sorts of systems that we might be able to detect, are things like two neutron stars or two black holes in a very tight orbit. And these are not the sort of systems that are ideal to study using traditional electromagnetic telescopes. So these systems, it's much better to hunt for them using gravitational waves than it is using telescopes. So um, if I understand it correctly, this would be kind of like another way of doing astronomy is different from light is from sound. Yes, it's a, that's a very good analogy. So it's a completely new way of doing astronomy. So you can think of normal telescopes as being like your eyes and gravitational wave astronomy as being like your ears. And we're trying to listen to the universe as well as look at it. And I've been doing a little bit of searching about this and the word inflation has come up a bit in relation to gravitational waves. What's this about? So inflation is a theory that says the universe underwent a very rapid period of expansion back when just after the Big Bang or very early on. This process can produce gravitational waves. Uh, these are very, very low-frequency gravitational waves with very, very long wavelengths. Uh, and you can hunt for these today by looking for particular patterns in the cosmic microwave background radiation. So that's one way of hunting for very, very low-frequency gravitational waves. So gravitational waves can be used to look at I say current, more recent cosmological events like what black holes and neutron stars are doing, but they also might provide a way to peer into the very ancient history of the universe. Absolutely, yeah, that's one possible way we can look back to the very early stages of the universe. Provided they're there. Provided they're there. We have very good reason to think that they are there. Georgia Mills speaking to Christopher Moore from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Greer Jackson. And now it's time to move on to the main topic for this week. It's one of the only legal psychoactive drugs worldwide. Even the Olympics allow it. The chemical formula is C8H10N4O2. And for the non-chemists among you, that means it is, of course, caffeine. But despite its popularity, people can't seem to agree on whether it's actually good or bad for you. And you know what, Chris? I was looking through some of the new newspaper archives and I can see why there's so much confusion about it. I'm going to read you a select few of my favourites. So in the 1500s, when coffee was around in Turkey, the headline reads, not enough grounds were grounds for divorce. It, coffee was so important that women could divorce their husbands because they didn't have enough coffee. So coffee deprivation would yeah. be grounds for divorce. Yeah, so coffee was a good thing back then. 1600s, it becomes a bad thing. It can cure alcoholism, actually, but it causes Impotence. And there's a great quote from a group of women who starts a petition saying, we find of late a very sensible decay of that true old English vigour. Never did men wear greater breeches or carry less in them. And that's when they had or they hadn't had 
their morning coffee. That was when they had had their morning coffee. 1700s, you start to get coffee being good for you. It makes you work longer. 1800s, coffee makes you go blind. Um, 1900s, caffeine is in the news and it's all bad again. There were some studies done in the 1980s with patients having more risk of heart attacks. And in the 2000s, I mean, it's been back and forth all over the place, but the stuff I've been reading tends to suggest it's actually a bit of a health food. So... Now I know that, I'm not surprised why people have no idea whether it's good or bad for this, because after all this, I just haven't the foggiest. Well, let's hope we can actually clear things up today. Now, us Brits might be known and indeed ridiculed for our copious tea intake, but it was actually coffee that first cornered the UK market, and that was in the 1640s. Tea didn't come along until some 20 years later. So to find more about our coffee history, I went to find out how a humble bean is processed into a delicious brew with Alex Summers at Cambridge University's Botanic Gardens. So there are two main species of coffee that are grown worldwide, Coffea arabica and Coffea robusta. The high-quality coffees come from Coffea arabica, and the lower-quality, higher yields come from Coffea robusta. I'm looking at the two of them. One's just a bit shorter. They've both got sort of crinkled leaves, like someone's got a hair crimper and crimped the leaves for them. But otherwise, they're remarkably similar. It shouldn't be unsurprising that they look similar because Coffea arabica probably has similar ancestry to Coffea canifora or the robusta coffee. In the case of Coffea arabica, it has four copies of the chromosomes or the genetic material. Now, we all know that... Plants like these are famous for their levels of caffeine. But why do they produce caffeine in the first place? It's quite interesting. They did an experiment with um, a spider. They got it to spin a web and they fed it all manner of different drugs from cocaine, ecstasy and caffeine. And what they found was that the spider produced the most erratic web when it was under the influence of caffeine. So you can truly see how effective caffeine is as an anti-herbivory agent, not necessarily so much as the case for ourselves. I assume you're not just growing it to make a lovely cup of coffee today. Why do you have it here at the Botanical Gardens? Uh, Funnily enough, actually, the opportunity to make a cup of coffee is great, but the real reason that we have it, like most of the collections here, is to provide both a resource to the university but also to provide a resource to the public. So in the case of coffee, we're all familiar with it from the shops, but it's nice to give people an idea of actually where it grows and where it comes from. Beans picked, we peeled off the red flesh dried them, and finally scraped off the outer husk to reveal the green bean underneath. Next stop was an artisan coffee shop called Hot Numbers for roasting. So Alex and I set off with a handful of botanical beans to meet Simon Fraser. We're just going to actually weigh the content of this. It's about a handful, isn't it? It it is. It's it's quite a small amount, but we will work with it. I'm just going to turn the scales on. We'll see. We've... uh... 10 grams. So we'll try and make a very small filter coffee with this afterwards. Simon fired up the roaster to 150 degrees C and not a degree more because even a couple of degrees can turn a good cup of coffee into a bad one. It's a, it's a glorified tumble dryer, I reckon, with a, with a big colander underneath. I have but to admit, it does look very swish. It's all sort of black and, and stainless steel. I would say almost steam engine-like. Yeah, it is very much... A steam engine with two windows, one where you can see the flames and the other where you can see the coffee beans jump around the drum while they roast. We have a sample spoon underneath it where we can pull out the coffee as it's roasted. And then, after the coffee's roasted and we're happy with the colour, then we'll drop it into this big cooling tray here. 
and that will cool the coffee. If we didn't do that, the coffee would carry on roasting and you would get a lot of baked flavours going on. I suppose much like an egg continues to cook after you boil it, unless you peel it very quick. That's it, that's it. So we Don't wanna... get dippy eggs. No, <laughs> no. hard-boiled eggs. That's it. Well, let's, let's hope for so, some hard-boiled coffee. So. With all our fingers and toes crossed, we poured the beans into the roaster. Alex from the Botanical Gardens, Simon and I, we all watched in awe at our hard work roll around the machine, much like clothes in a tumble dryer. And then the beans began to pop like popcorn. So we're we're approaching first crack. The beans are agitating a lot more. They're giving off a lot more energy and they're doubling in size. I can't tell. My non-coffee connoisseur eye can't tell the difference. I can tell they've changed colour. I can see they're dancing more and they've got a snap to them now. Yeah, much more of a caramel. Yep. Oh, yeah, and I can definitely get the smell of coffee now, that yeah. that, that smell you associate with... Uh... Unless you could, I think you might be smelling some from that tub oh. there, actually. Well, it smells <laughs> really nice. Whatever it is, it smells well, really good. Because, well, it's, it's often confused, but when, when we're roasting coffee, it's, it's usually, you, you'd expect it to be the coffee smell, but it's not. It's actually like a sort of a, a toast smell. It's like a breakfast smell that you'd get in the morning. We're about to drop the coffee out into the cooling tray from the drum. Here we are. Looking a bit patchy, but you know it's the best we could do under the circumstances, I, I believe. But you know they've, they've got a bit of mottling and a bit of you know difference in colour. But I would say characteristic of the botanical gardens. Is that right? Yeah, characteristic. <laughs> Not sure we want to own that one. <laughs> Patchy in colour or not, the proof is in the taste. So we ground them up and brewed them. But first, I had a quick question about the science of grinding. In supermarkets, you might have seen that on the packaging it says ground for French press or espresso or whatever. But do you really need to buy a different grind for different types of brewing? Or is this just some clever marketing ploy? The grinder is probably most important in getting the consistency between the beans. And if you've got a good grinder, then you get an even surface area. And the more evenness between the beans, the, the better the extraction. And so, yes, for espresso, you want a fine grind. As you're getting more towards the sort of mocha pot, it wants to go a little bit coarser. And as you go to French press, that's the coarsest grind. So we're going to grind this coffee up for paper filter. Oh, here we go. Feel tense? Do you feel tense? Yeah, absolutely, it's incredible. <laughs> cheers, 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 cheers! It definitely is rummy. Yeah, some rum, or almost some sort of sherry elements. See, look, it didn't taste like mud, Alex. No, it didn't. I'm really happy, actually. I would actually drink that. How would you say this compares to what you would normally be brewing? It's funny because it's like nothing that I've tasted really. And, and, you know, it's not bad actually. I'm really quite enjoying it. I mean, it's, it's, it's very different. So if Alex was to set up his own cultivation <laughs> business at Cambridge Botanical Gardens, would you buy his coffee? Well, I'd certainly give it another go to put through the roaster, but I might need more than about 10 grams. So. <laughs> Alex, what do you say? I mean, I feel like I should be a shareholder at least, having introduced you guys. Absolutely, absolutely. I think what we'll put to the director is ripping out all the plants and just putting coffee right through the tropical <laughs> houses. Yeah. <laughs> Simon Fraser from Hot Numbers and Alex Summers, he's from the Cambridge Botanic Gardens. So, Greer, did you bring us some back? 
No, I didn't. And sadly, there was about 30 beans in there, which was just about enough for one cup. But, you know, you can't complain. I did bring you some delicious coffee to try. No, you absolutely did. Now, what does this coffee actually do when it gets inside our body? Well, Dr. Thomas Krieg is a clinical pharmacologist at Cambridge University. One of the things he does is to look at how your body responds to the chemicals that you put into it. What actually is caffeine and what does it do to us? The main thing, the main effects we are talking about today here are the effects of the brain. So you ingest the coffee and the caffeine goes into the bloodstream and it's soluble in oil and water. That means it can easily cross the blood-brain barrier. And in the brain, it has uh, effects, uh, as everywhere else in the body, of blocking the adenosine receptors. There are many um, variations of adenosine receptors and uh, caffeine pretty much blocks all of them. But uh, what happens is in the brain is that the, the effect of these adenosine receptors is if they are active, they make you drowsy. And by blocking these receptors, you're obviously more alert. And that is the main effect. If every organ in the body has got these or every cell in the body has these adenosine receptors, are the effects only confined to the brain then? One would think not. No, there are, um, there are many effects all over the body. Another prominent effect is obviously on the heart, where the heart rate gets increased and the force of the heart and therefore the blood pressure um, increases as well. So caffeine has a sort of generally whole body enlivening effect. You're going to stimulate the, the brain's wakefulness system because you're inhibiting the thing that would normally make you feel sleepy. And right. at the same time, all around the body, cells are having these adenosine receptors blocked, leading to an increase in their metabolic effort and, and how active those cells are. Yes, that's correct. What about the fact that people say, well, you know, we should try and keep our heart rate low and we should try and keep our blood pressure low. If it's going to increase the action of your heart and make your blood vessels constrict, isn't that bad? Yeah, that's very tricky to uh, investigate, first of all, because we you have to uh, distinguish between a chronic effect and an acute effect. So a lot of things which are obviously very good for you, like a sport, increases your heart rate and your uh, blood pressure acutely, but in the long term, it has a beneficial effect. What is, is helpful in this case is to look at diseases which are directly linked to situations like high blood pressure, for example, strokes. And there are big studies out there now where uh, people were followed on over many, many years, and it turned out that they do not have an increased rate in stroke. In fact, in some studies, they even have less risk of stroke. So you're saying I can drink my way to fitness? Not quite, but almost, yes. One of the things that people often say about coffee is that it makes them, and therefore caffeine, is it makes them very jittery. And, and I know friends who say, I have one cup of coffee and, and I can't do anything the rest of the day. And in fact, there was a, a sign on the wall in the lab I worked in in Australia. And, and it said, do stupid things more quickly with caffeine. Um, I'm not one of those people, but I know many who are. Why is that? The biggest things you have to uh, look at here is the all receptors in the body can be downregulated when they are chronically activated. And the same is true with adenosine receptors. So if you take coffee in on a regular basis, the effects go away. So that is one thing. The second thing is that caffeine will be broken down in the liver by certain enzymes. They are called cytochromes. And the levels of cytochromes are highly different between individuals. So one might have a very high level of cytochromes another one might have almost none. And that means that caffeine will be broken down at different speeds between different individuals. 
With that in mind then, how long will it be between having an intake of caffeine and it finally being washed out from the body on average? How long does it last? The, the half-life of caffeine itself is about five to seven hours, but the effect you will probably not see it after like three or four hours. We might have a long night ahead of you, Greya. Should, should we find out what your heart rate and blood pressure why not? We, doing, we now had it. quite a big dose in the kitchen there with Peter. Yeah, so. I have I've had a couple of espressos where, and we measured my blood pressure and heart rate before the show to get a good idea of if it would change at all. That'll be accurate, won't it? Just before an, an invigorating radio performance. <laughs> so what was it before the show? Yeah, uh, Graham was uh, kind of relaxed with 133 over 88 <laughs> and a heart rate of uh, 75. So this is not almost uh, so this is pressure. And now we will measure again and uh, see whether there's an increase. Obviously, this is not a scientific study we're doing here. Yeah, there's only one of me, and I imagine, as you said, lots of people have lots of different reactions to coffee, so, you know. Here we go. We're we're pumping up the cuff. So what would you anticipate then, Thomas? Um, What would you expect the effect of coffee to have been on on a young, fit female? I would not expect much of an effect, Uh, maybe a slight increase, but then again, it's very hard to tell with this setting here of, of a radio show whether this is really due to the coffee. And, uh, or just to the adrenalizing effect of the stimulating content on this program. Is that right. what you're trying to say? <laughs> yes, that's what, what I tried. Precisely. I think that's exactly what he was trying to say. And also there's the running back and forth from the kitchen as well. <laughs> Lots of moving around. Exercise is good for you. See, And it increases the blood pressure as well. Okay, now uh, your number now is 141 over 88 with a pulse of 82. So slightly higher than before, but not much. I'm also slightly nervous now about sort of occupational health grounds because what this proves is that doing a, an invigorating radio program gives staff hypertension <laughs> and, um, and tachycardia. So um, could we be? Could that be grounds for suing? I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's Dr. Thomas Creek. He's a clinical pharmacologist at Cambridge University. And based on that washout period for caffeine grey, you've got a bit of a wait. It's going to be up yeah. quite late tonight. I mean, I think I should get a lion tomorrow and come late to work. No chance. Here on The Naked Scientists, we've been looking into caffeine. We now know how it affects our brain and our body. But now we head to the nub of the issue. Is it good or bad for us? Dr. Sandra Sumran Lee joins us from Lancaster University, where she works on caffeine and its effects on the brain. So, Sandra, I'm wondering if you can unpack this a little bit for us. Is it good? Is it bad? What does the literature say? It's again, it's difficult. It's the same as Thomas said before in terms of some of the other effects we've seen. You know, the the worries: does it raise heart rate? Is that dangerous in the long term? I think what we can say that moderate dosage of caffeine doesn't seem to do you any harm and it can actually improve your cognitive performance to a certain extent. How much caffeine are you talking about? Are you talking about a cup of coffee, a cup of tea? Well, this is the other point, you know, when we talk about moderate dosages is there's different amounts of caffeine in different cups of coffee depending on how they were brewed. Tea usually has less caffeine in it. We also have caffeine in chocolate. You don't only take in caffeine in form of a cup of coffee. You have caffeine in other substances as well. 
the effects we found on cognition are usually in the range between 40 to 150 milligram. So 40 milligram, that would be a very small cup of espresso, for example. 150 milligram, that would be a quite large cup of brewed coffee, for example. So if I was having that that on a regular basis, say maybe two large coffees a day, is there any evidence that suggests going over that dose, maybe 200 milligrams a day, might be bad for our health. There is no direct evidence that it would be. I mean, unless you already have high blood pressure or if you're pregnant or indeed in children and adolescents, it's not recommended. The chances are it wouldn't do you immediate harm. But if you do it over a longer period of time, particularly if you have high blood pressure anyway, or if you're somebody who suffers from anxiety, you might actually make that worse. But again, you know, people are different. And for, for some people, that they might actually enjoy the buzz they get from coffee and the, uh, a higher buzz from a higher dose for other people's that might be detrimental. So if it's not necessarily good or bad for us, what about addiction? Because some people talk about being addicted to coffee and if they don't have any, they get a headache. Is there any truth behind that? I think here we have to differentiate addiction and withdrawal symptoms. So people can get headaches uh, if they don't take caffeine. Now, this is due to what Thomas mentioned before, the these adenosine receptors in the brain. They are blocked because we take in caffeine. Now, if we don't have our dosage of caffeine, then we have a higher increase in the kind of transmission in the adenosine system. And that might actually lead to dilation of blood vessels. So the headaches come on, we feel more tired. Obviously, if we now take another cup of coffee or any kind of substance drink that contains caffeine, we'll feel better again. So there is definitely this kind of withdrawal symptoms and they make us somewhat dependent on caffeine. However, when we look at addiction, then caffeine has a very, very low addictive potential. So what we have, we have a form of dependence, but we don't really have addiction. Your work works at sugar and caffeine together with these energy drinks. Does glucose and caffeine seem to have some sort of combined effect? They seem to have some combined effect simply because they act on different aspects of cognition. So, for example, we have glucose is more good for complex tasks, decision making, particularly memory. Caffeine on its own is good for attention tasks, simple tasks where we have to have sustained attention. If we take both substances in together, we can see beneficial effects above and beyond those we see with these two substances in isolation. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Sandra Sumran-Lee from Lancaster University. So drinking moderate amounts of caffeine might actually be good for you then. But what about when in the day you drink it? We've alluded to the fact that it can affect how awake or how woozy you feel. So how does it affect our sleep? And could there therefore be some long term detrimental effects? Dr. John O'Neill's from the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology. So, John, first of all, what actually regulates when we sleep and when we're awake? Whether or not we sleep is dependent upon two separate, though related, biological processes. One of them is your homeostatic sleep drive. um, And that is something that simply accumulates the longer that you've been awake. And that's very much dependent upon uh, adenosine and these adenosine receptors that have already been mentioned. And in that context, the longer you've been awake, the more adenosine you have in the brain. And in that context, adenosine acts like a sedative. So it's trying to make you go to sleep. Exactly. And so so that's why the longer you've been awake, the more sleep you get, because it's, it's just building up. That's exactly right. But then there is another 
equally important process, your circadian rhythm. And that's the internal biological clock that regulates so many different aspects of our physiology, such as when we feel hungry, but also when we fall asleep and when we wake up in the morning. There is literally a neurological clock ticking in the brain that's keeping time and gets us up in the morning and sends us to bed at night. It's even more interesting than that. Not only is it in the brain, but it's in every single cell of the body. So I could take a scraping of your skin cells, grow them in a Petri dish, and they would still have an approximately 24-hour rhythm in when various clock genes are turned on and off. So my body knows what time of day it is. And metabolically, it's it's gearing up for when I'm going to get up in the morning. It's winding me down at night. That's absolutely How right. does you've answered the question? What does caffeine do to the buildup of adenosine in the brain that's trying to inexorably build up and send me to sleep anyway? But what about the circadian clock? What does caffeine do to that then? That's a question that had not actually been answered until very recently. So, in collaboration with a colleague in the states, Ken Wright at the University of Colorado, in the first experiment, we took five humans and persuaded them uh, to spend five, uh, 49 days in uh, constant dim lights, basically. Not a huge amount of fun. But under those very well-controlled experimental conditions, we could monitor their biological clock by looking at the timing of the release of the sleep hormone melatonin. And so then what we do is give them, three hours before their normal bedtime, either a placebo pill or a caffeine pill. And the caffeine pill is about 200 milligrams, about the same that you get in a double espresso. A nice strong coffee. Yep. Exactly. And what we observed was that the melatonin uh, increase was delayed by nearly an hour. Okay, so what you're basically doing is the equivalent of jet lagging yourself. In other words, taking that dose of coffee at whatever time of day is going to push back the natural time when you say you want, when your brain is normally going to tell you to go to sleep. And so you're going to start to wind down an hour later than you otherwise would or so? We actually can't say that yet. All that we can say confidently at the moment is that taken in the evening, it will delay your biological clock. And then the fascinating thing is that we can see exactly the same thing at the cellular level. So in human cells, treating them with caffeine has the same effect. It delays the biological clock. So the thing that's important in terms of your health taking a step back, is that we know that circadian disruption, as occurs during shift work, for example, is really bad for you in the long term. So there's a very strong association with chronic diseases such as diabetes, neurodegenerative disorders. Breast uh, cancer. Exactly, yeah. yeah. A load of different cancers. So, so are you, you don't, don't tell me that by taking coffee into the evening, I might be pushing myself into almost the same regime and, and increase my disease it's, risk. It's unlikely that it's going to be of the same magnitude as of the risk uh, associated with shift work. But it's certainly likely to be pushing you in that direction. Am I robbing myself of sleep, though, John, in the sense that if I do this and I enable myself to to stay active for longer into the evening, but then I still set my alarm clock for seven o'clock the next morning, am I effectively building up a sleep debt this way? Yes, you are building up a sleep debt. And not only that... Going back to the homeostatic sleep drive, if you put one of these electroencephalograms on an individual during sleep... It measures brainwaves, That's right? exactly right. It measures brainwaves. You see that the delta power, these slow waves that are very characteristic hallmarks of deep sleep, are uh, much more disrupted in individuals that have had caffeine. So not only are you going to increase your sleep debt by drinking coffee late at night or any form of caffeine late at night, but also the quality of sleep is going to be less Because good. the normal pattern of sleep that evolves overnight is not going to be fulfilled in your average night. So would your advice then be on the basis of what you're finding that people perhaps shouldn't push their coffee drinking into the late night? Clearly, it is going to vary between individuals, as Thomas said. So some people just do not notice uh, a coffee 
in the evening, and that's got to be due I mean, to genetic I'm one of them. variation. I, I, I will drink coffee till the cows come home, and it doesn't seem to affect my sleep. So that's got to be due to genetic variation within the population. Or just saturation. Is the <laughs> no, other no, no, it can't be due to saturation <laughs> because this aspect doesn't seem to, um, you don't seem to be able to tolerate to its effect upon sleep and circadian rhythms. Um, so what I would probably advise, based on what we know at the moment, that in caffeine-sensitive individuals, they really should try not to drink caffeine at night. Okay, well, we'll bear that in mind, and I'll see if I can actually mitigate my habit a little bit. Thank you very much. John O'Neill from the MRC Laboratory for Molecular Biology. Thank you also to our other caffeinated studio guests this week. Yes, we did serve them a nice strong tea. Peter Cowley, Thomas Krieg and Sandra Sunram Lee. Before we finish the show, it's time for Question of the Week. Felicity Bedford's been journeying into the depths of space on a quest to answer Warren's cosmic quandary. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. We all know that the galaxy contains billions of stars. Since the amount of energy that all those stars have been pouring out is obviously enormous, how come space is so cold? I spoke to Ryan MacDonald from the Cambridge University Institute of Astronomy to find out more. The distance between the stars in the universe is absolutely phenomenal. We're talking just between our star and the nearest star, trillions and trillions of miles. And so although that means that we could be quite warm in space nearby to the sun, the majority of the universe is so far away from the rest of the stars in the universe that it is absolutely freezing. I mean, we're talking the temperature of space in shadows or far away from stars, it's around minus 270 Celsius. That is almost as cold as it is possible to get, only about three degrees above the coldest temperature theoretically possible. How do we know about these extreme temperatures if they're so far away from our own experience of space? So the the temperature of just empty space far away from any stars is set by something that we call the cosmic microwave background. So basically, after the Big Bang took place, it emitted a huge amount of light about 400,000 or so years after it. And that light has gradually lost energy and cooled down over time. And so this is just background light that just fills the entire universe. And it's really, really cold. And so that is what sets the fundamental temperature of space itself away from the stars. Thanks, Ryan. Sounds extremely chilly. Next time, we'll be tackling Bronwyn's question. Why do mosquitoes prefer some people over others? Mm, I have to say, I'm a bit of a mosquito magnet. Do you find that, Chris? Actually, no, I, I'm pretty immune. I like hanging around with my wife because she is. I never get bitten when she's around. That's so unfair. Do you have any ideas at home, guys? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientist, or, of course, join in the debate on the forum. It's nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that's it for this week. Thank you to Greya for putting the programme together. We'll be back next week when the Doctors of Love will be delving into the science of dating, sex and marriage. Does science have all of the answers for us? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. 
the nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.